Magandang umaga po sa inyong lahat at maligayang Pasko at manigong bagong taon. That is a famous greeting in our land that technically means hi. <laughs> no, it's, it means good morning and Merry Christmas to you all and a Happy New Year. It is a great joy and privilege for me to share God's word for you today. I am Alvin Litonwa, and I serve as one of the staff members of this church. And this morning, we are going to talk about worship, okay? And we're going to talk about worship through the lenses of Psalms 95. If you may open your Bibles in that page, Psalm 95. As you flip to your Bibles, I'll give you a short background. Psalm 95 has been used by the churches throughout centuries as a call to worship. I believe it is fitting that we would come to this psalm during the Christmas season because we are called to worship the incarnated God whose purpose is coming into the world is to redeem us, to redeem his people from his sins. As we approach this psalm, it'll give us a 3,000-old perspective on worship. Psalm 95, with its reference to the wilderness wanderings in Exodus chapter 17, is by far the most looked-at psalm in the Bible to inform our worship. And it is also looked up as how we shape the way we worship as a covenant community. So, I'll jump right into our main point this morning. And the main point is this. God's people are called to worship him for who he is. God's people are called to worship him for who he is. With this, I have only two points. Number one, there is a call to worshipers. A call to worshipers. Number two, a caution to worshipers. A caution to worshipers. Number one, a call to worshipers. The Lord is constantly calling and inviting his covenant community to worship him. And we, will, we can see that in verse one. Come, let us sing and make a joyful noise. Verse two, let us make let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and songs of praise. And in verse 3, we would see the word for. This is an important conjunction in this passage because it reveals the purpose why the psalmist is con consistently inviting God's people to sing and why is he commanding them to make a joyful, thankful songs of praise. And he gives the answer in verse 3. And this is the answer why. Because of who God is. This is the main reason why the psalmist is consistently inviting God's people to worship him. It is because of who God is. And it's the same way we, God's people, are being called by God to worship him for who he is. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. True worship is not grounded in the fanciful imagination of man, but it is grounded in the character of God himself that is revealed in Scripture. Uh, I remember when I was a child, 
I used to keep a small neon plastic cross necklace. So every time I wear these ne- this necklace, I felt that I'm very close to the Lord. And what I do with this necklace is kind of weird because I pray to this, this, this necklace. I, I, I sing songs of worship to this necklace. I confess my sin to this necklace. And, and, but here's the thing. Every time I commit an act of rebellion or I'm in the process of sinning, I remove it and put it on my pocket. I was hopeful that he would not see me. I only wear that cross when I desperately needed comfort, courage, and security. There are two things that are wrong here. One, I fashioned a God that I can manipulate and control. Second, I also worship this God in a way that pleases me. A lot of us think that way about who God is and how we should worship Him. This is a mistake that a lot of us make in understanding worship because it locates the ground of worship in ourselves, in our problems, in our interests, in our own needs, in our conveniences, in our own thinking. It thinks of worship as a response to our interests and problems. Some might say, you know what, I'm going to worship the Lord any way I want it as long as I'm sincere. My friend, if that is you... You are sincerely wrong. This is not true Christian worship. True Christian worship finds its ground, its purpose, and its motivation in the character of God on the basis of His Word. We worship God for who He is and not for who we'd like to think He is or who we want Him to be. We worship, Worship is about who God is and not about who we are. Verses 3 to 7 gives us a description on who this great God is and why we should worship Him with all our lives. This is my hope and prayer for this morning's uh, teaching. That as we go through this passage, we would see the beauty, majesty, and might of this great God who is calling us, who is inviting us to worship Him for who He is. First of all, he is our great God and King. He is our great God and King. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. His kingship and majesty is above all gods. The psalmist here is not saying that there are different types of gods or there are different kinds of gods existing in the world aside from Yahweh. This is the psalmist's poetic way of denying the existence of the local counterfeit gods that were created and worshipped by nations surrounding Israel. Whether these gods are carved out of wood or stone, or human kings or magistrates who consider themselves as gods, God is greater than them all. His kingship and majesty is far greater above all these counterfeit gods which are really No gods at all. And his kingship and majesty is the only transcendent glory worthy of the worship of men. When we come to worship God, do we see him as a king? Do we see him as a glorious king? 
Back when I was in high school, we, I had a classmate named Al. So what I'm about to share, I'm not proud of because we always bully Al, me and my friends. We make fun of him. We make fun of how he speaks, how he dresses, how he walks. And, and we just are mean to this young guy. Until one day, one of our friends rushed to us and said, Alvin, you better stop making fun of Al. And I go, what? what's wrong with that? <laughs> it's because he is the son of the chieftain of one of the tribes in this area in the Philippines. And his father is coming this afternoon. <laughs> our jaw drop. All of a sudden, there was a change on how we treated him. We were just afraid of him now. We respected him. We honored him. We were so nice to him, even bought him lunch. <laughs> but what was my point? When we come to this glorious king, do we, when we come to God in worship, do we view him as a king, a glorious king? Remember, God is a king who is better than any other kings of this world or authority. So we should worship God for who he is, his kingship and majesty. Apart from him, there is no other gods. I would like to give you a few more uh, verses uh, or chapters in the book of Psalm to display this majesty. Psalm chapter 40, verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed with majesty. So God's uh, garments are majesty. Or majestic. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. We will never exhaust the Lord's majesty. Isaiah 35, verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Are we motivated by a humble, joyous knowledge of this majestic God. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer comments on the majesty and greatness of God. And I quote, The Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by knowledge of the greatness of God. But this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. And that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. We are modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have, as a rule, small thoughts about God. End quote. Do we have great thoughts and deep affections about this majestic God who is our King? Second, he is not only our great God and King, but He is our great Creator. He is our great Creator. Verse 4 to 6. In His hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made them, and His hands formed the dry land. He is the great Creator. The psalmist further expounds how far greater Yahweh 
is compared to the man-made gods that our other nations worship. These nations worship the, the mountain gods, the, the sea gods, the celestial gods, the gods of the valley. They worship a god of fire and so on and so forth. The psalmist is saying Yahweh is greater than these local gods. Because he's not bound in a certain location. He is the creator God. He created the mountains. He created the seas. He created the valleys. The depths of the earth is in his hands. He created the greater light and the lesser lights. When he spoke, galaxies of stars were formed. He stretched out the heavens. He created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He put into place thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created by God and for his glory. He is no puny God that we can control or manipulate. And we should be awe-stricken by His greatness. Verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. You know, this is really remarkably humbling. The majestic king, the creator of the world, whose hands have formed and shaped and fashioned the world are the very same hands that gently, carefully formed our inward parts and knit us together in our mother's womb. He is the great creator. This is what we need to remind ourselves when we come to him in worship. He is the creator. We are the created. He tells us what to do. We don't tell him what to do. It's not the other way around. Have we created in our thoughts a God that we can easily control or manipulate? Or have we created a God that we have contained and confined on the walls of our flat? Or in our building. Or maybe we have formed or created a God that we put in our wallets. And hopefully when we're in the mood, we would worship Him. Remember, God cannot be contained. Acts chapter 7, verses 48 to 50. The Apostle Paul says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He is the mighty creator God. Not only is he the great majestic king who created everything, he is also a loving, caring shepherd, which is the third. He is our great shepherd. Verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. And the sheep of his hand. The psalmist is using a shepherding metaphor to picture how God took care, provided for, and protected his covenant people Israel in the wilderness. Though he is the majestic creator God, he is also a personal God. Look at verse 6 to 7. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. 
He is not a distant, passive, cosmic being who does not care about his people. It is not right, or is it? It is not true what the 1985 song says about God. You know what it says? God is watching us from a distance. Can I sing now? Still no. Okay. I was hoping. No! God did not distance himself from us. In fact, the message of Christmas is God with us. Where God sent his son to die on the cross to redeem us from our sins and to reconcile us to the Father. God is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He is a personal God who cares for you and for me. If he knows the number of galaxies of stars and called them by name, and he knows the numbers of hair strands on your head, wouldn't he know you by name? Wouldn't he know your cares and concerns? Wouldn't he know you know your fears and tears? Wouldn't he not know your frustrations and anxieties? He's the great shepherd, and he's the only God that we needed. He will provide everything that we needed in his own time, in his own way, in accordance to his will. He is the great majestic creator God who cares about us and we are to worship him for who he is. If we fully grasp the truth about who God is, it will naturally lead us to worship him. Worship Him in songs. Worship Him in jo- with joy, thankfulness, and reverence. Regardless, you're worshiping Him privately or personally or corporately worshiping Him with God's people. And, and worship with an understanding of who God is will dramatically change the way you live. It will change the way you live. You no longer live for yourself. You live for God's glory. He's our King, our Creator, our Shepherd. Fourthly, He is the rock of our salvation. Now I want you to jump right back to verse 1. Because I don't want to miss this. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now this verse is a reference to what God did in the first generation children of Israel in the wilderness. And if you can flip your Bible in Exodus chapter 17... Verses 1 to 7, as you go there, I'm going to give you the the immediate context. This is where Israel has delivered out, this is where Israel has been delivered out from Egypt and are headed now to Mount Sinai to receive God's law. As they camped in the middle of the desert, they got thirsty and there was no water uh, everywhere. And, And they started complaining, they started grumbling, and they started crying out to Moses. Give us water to the point of stoning him to death. Moses got afraid, started crying out to God. Lord, what I'm going to do, you're going to kill me. And this is how God instructed him. Verse 5 to 7 of Exodus 17. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God instructed Moses to bring the el- some of the elders, which, rep- which 
to serve as witnesses. But what's interesting about this is the part that God said, take the staff. The very staff that Moses used, that God used to, to cast judgment to the Egyptians. Specifically, making the, the water of the Nile turn blood. So this, this staff represents judgment. So when Moses and the elders stood before the people, it was a judgment council. It is a sign that they are out to judge the people for their rebellion. But instead of striking the people dead with the judgment staff, he struck the rock on which God was standing. Instead of giving them what they deserve, which is death, they were given life, which was water that they may not die and thirst. You know that worshiping God is a command? And the truth is, no one can perfectly obey that command. Because the fallen nature of man is not to worship God, but to worship himself. That's why our fallen nature is rebellious. Because of God's holy judge, he's a holy judge, we are guilty of this sin and we deserve to be judged. But instead of God striking us with his wrath, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who did perfectly obeyed him, who perfectly worshipped him. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and struck him with his wrath on the cross in our place so that we may live. Friends, the majestic, glorious king has left his kingdom to die for his people. He is the creator God who was crucified by those whom he created in his image. He is the good shepherd who died for his sheep to redeem us from sins and restore us to the Father. If you're here today and you do not have this right relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ, repent from your sins, my friends. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. Let go of these gods that are not really gods and put your faith on the finished work of Christ in the cross who can save you. Because of what Christ has done, we now have access to the Father and able to worship God for who He is with joy, thankfulness, and reverence of what He has done. We now worship God not just for who He is, but what He has done. So in these first seven verses, outlines the description of who this great God is and, uh, why, why, and why we are to worship Him. Now the second part of this passage, the psalmist switches from a call to worshipers to a warning. From call to worshipers to a caution to worshipers. That's number two. Caution to worshipers. And here's the warning. Do not harden your hearts against this great God. Do not harden your hearts against this great God. Verse se- second part of verse 7 through 9. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So what does it mean to harden one's heart? And what has this got to do with worship? Let's see. After Moses struck the rock 
and water gushed out from it. If you would go back to Exodus 17, now I'm reading verse 7, this is what he did. Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us? Now Meribah means, from the word Riva, Reeve, which means to quarrel. That was the place where they quarreled with God. The question of quarreling is in verse 3 of chapter 17 of Exodus. They asked the question, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Meribah means to quarrel. Masa means to test. They called the place testing because that's the place where they tested God and where they failed to believe his commands or word. The question of testing there is in verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? So when the psalmist warned God's covenant people to not harden their hearts, it means do not test God and quarrel. Do not rebel against him. The problem was they did exactly the opposite. They quarreled with God's purpose and doubted his commandments as his king, as a king. They tested God's ability to lead and guide them as their shepherd. They doubted that God would provide for them as their creator. The psalmist is reminding them how wrongly their forefathers responded to this majestic God. They tested him and quarreled with him. So how is this related to worship? Here's the truth. It was God's plan to lead the people of Israel to this specific place in the middle of nowhere in the desert where there were no streams, no lakes, no wells to draw water from for this purpose, to test them. To test them. It was a test whether they are to humble themselves before God or not. It was a test if they were to obey God's word or rebel against it. It was a test whether if they were to trust him or doubt him. It was a test whether they are to harden their hearts against him or worship him in the midst of this trial. My friends, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now, but the way we, res- we respond to trials and testings that the sovereign Lord brings to our lives will expose, will reveal who and what we truly worship. Who we really trust. Who we really depend on. For the Israelites, their hearts were exposed to what they truly worship. They had worshipped the prosperity of Egypt. They have worshipped their security. They worship their bellies. They worship relationships. And they have worshipped themselves more than God. They worship convenience and comfort more than they worship God. And we see that throughout their journey in the wilderness. Let me show you a few passages. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 17 of Exodus. This is how they responded. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 to 12. Pharaoh was pursuing them, and the people of Israel were stuck because in front of them or behind them was the Red Sea. And this is how they responded to Moses. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone? 
that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Exodus 16, verse 3. Would that we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It revealed what they truly worship. It revealed what they truly adore. It revealed what they truly depend on. That is why in verse 10, God was disgusted with them. Verse 10, going back to Psalm 95. For 40 years, I loathe that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their hearts. God was dis- that, That's the word loathe means disgusted or disgust. After showing himself to be more glorious than any earthly king or pharaoh, and after revealing his power and authority over nature by dividing the Red Sea, after providing for and protecting them as their shepherd, they still cling on and cried out to the real gods of their lives themselves. As a result, God did not let them experience the rest of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we see that in verse 11. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God had bought them in the, brought them in a situation to test them, but it turns out that they tested God. Let me repeat what I just said earlier for our application purposes. The way we respond to trials and testings that the sovereign Lord brings to our lives will expose, will reveal who we truly worship in our hearts, who we really trust, who we really depend on. Friends, how are you responding to trials and suffering? How are you responding to that? Do we respond this way by closing our fist against God with a hardened heart Do we test Him? Do we quarrel against His will? Do we question His purposes? Do we rebel against His hand? Do we harden our hearts and anger? Or do we respond by opening our hands and bowing our hearts in worship, submitting to His will, knowing that He is our Creator God? who will sustain us, and that He is our great shepherd, who will take care of us and provide for our needs, that He is the majestic sovereign king over all, who works all things together for our good and for the praise of His name. It's either a closed fist or an open one. Do you worship God in the midst of trials? Or do we we mumble and complain? How do you face the toughest issues in your life with peace and rest? The answer to that is mainly through worship. Psalm 57, if you'll flip a few chapters back, the psalmist talks about how bad things are in life. His enemies are everywhere, things are out of control, and everything is going wrong. But this is how we responded in verse 5. Be exalted, of of Psalm chapter 57, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And he repeats it in verse 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all, let your glory be over all the earth. 
He never asks for anything. The only thing that he sees is how great and majestic this God is. There are so many things in the Bible that talks about uh, petitionary prayers. And, this, and it's not wrong, it's right. And when we, we have need, if we're going through struggle, it's okay to pray. We must do that. However, what's amazing about this man in uh, Psalms 57 is that he's calling out to God, not through petitionary prayers, but through worship. Worship. He is worshiping God for who He is, the majestic Creator God who cares for Him. He is submitting to Himself to God's will. My my dad passed away four years ago because of cancer, and and the type of cancer he got he has is what you call multiple myeloma. Uh, multiple myeloma is a type of cancer that attacks the white blood cells and it deteriorates the bone marrow. So the process of him going through this is really excruciating pain. And, and I was with him. But one thing I noticed about him as he goes through this, this pain, I notice his worship life. He's a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, by the way. I notice his worship life. Instead of hearing him complaining and questioning God, I I notice that he's reading God's word more. He's sharing God's word more. He is singing praises to God more. He's praying and and doing all these things. He was worshiping God in the midst of pain and something that I was having a hard time understanding back then. And and, and one day, this is the last time I talked to him, I, I, I went by his bed and, and talked to him and was trying to encourage him, he hauled onto my arm and smiled at me and said, I'm ready. The amazing thing, he stopped praying about healing. But he started worshiping and leaving his life to his creator God for whatever he, is, he plans out for him. This is in relation to what I'm going to say right now. Hebrews chapter 3 to 4 is an extended commentary of Psalm 95. Joshua led the nation of Israel to their promised rest. This earthly rest was not perfect. It was filled with attacks from the enemies and the daily cycle of work. However, this rest points to a greater heavenly rest that is promised to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The heavenly rest is far greater and perfect than the earthly rest. Friends, if, if you're going through a difficult time in your life right now, suffering and pain physically, emotionally, relationally, there will come a time for those God's, who are God's people, there will come a time that there will be no more pain. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more loneliness. Loneliness will cease to exist. There will be no more fear of death because of the absence of sin. We will be finally reunited for eternity to those who have gone before us. And we will meet Christ face to face. And this is what ultimately we will be doing for eternity. Worshipping the Lamb who was slain. Worshipping Him. As we conclude this morning's talk, our lives is all about worship. 
Whatever controls us is what we worship. The people who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who is controlled by acceptance is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. But one thing is certain, we do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. The world is not divided between worshipers and non-worshipers. It's divided between people who worship things that destroys them and the people who worship the proper object of the worship of our souls, which is God, the true living God. It's either you worship man-made imaginary gods or worship the great majestic creator God who cares for you. Friends, let us come and worship this great God in prayer. Let us pray. Father, with reverence we acknowledge the privilege of knowing you, the great majestic king and the creator of the world. Thank you for the privilege of worship and knowing you personally and having our affections steered by your beauty and might. May we all, Lord, examine our hearts that we may not leave this place with quarreling and testing on our tongues, hardening our hearts. If we are hardening our hearts, Lord, break our hearts. And as we go through the trials and testings that you have entrusted in our lives, may we not harden our hearts against you, but it would bend us towards worshiping you. Lord, we praise your name, and we are so looking forward to the eternal rest that was promised to us. Amen.